I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 4 and also Hebrews chapter 11. Genesis chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 11 will also be there in your worship guide. So we've been going through Genesis for over a month now, and one of the reasons that we've been studying Genesis is because it answers so many foundational questions that we have. Questions like, who is God? Why are we here? Who are we? Uh, What does it mean to be human? Uh, We've actually looked at that question, what does it mean to be human, for a few weeks, uh, because it's a question that our culture is pretty confused over. Uh, Depending on who you ask, you are going to get a different answer for what it means to be human. I was reading an article uh, about a certain college campus in which students were protesting the way that illegal immigrants were being treated, saying that they were being treated like animals at our borders. But the reality is, once these college students finish protesting and they go back to class and they go to their science class, they'll hear their science professor basically say that all humans are animals. If you're a human struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, You can go to a professional like a psychiatrist who's going to tell you you shouldn't kill yourself, that your life as a human being has meaning and has value. Then if you're to go down the street and go into the classroom of a philosopher, you will be told that there is no meaning to life and that no human has value. You could turn on the TV and you're going to listen to the talking heads go on and on about what it means to truly be a free human. And to be a free human means you need to follow your heart. You need to uh, yield to your desires. But then we will literally lock up the abuser or the pedophile who says all that they were doing was following their heart and their desires. And we will call them subhuman. So what does it mean to be human? Who who do you ask? What what field of science do you go to? Do you go to science at all? These, These are the questions that are percolating all around in our culture. And it's one of the reasons that we're here studying Genesis is because our culture is massively confused over what it actually means to be a human. But God teaches us what that means to be a human created in his image. And today what we're gonna do is look at what it means to be a human created in his image, living in a world that is broken. We're going to look at this through looking at the story of Cain and Abel. And now when you first think of Cain and Abel, you are tempted to think of, oh yes, this is a story about the the first murder that we have in the Bible, but it really isn't so much a story about murder. It's really a story about what life looks like in a broken world. With this in mind, let's look at Hebrews chapter 11 and Genesis 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Genesis 4. Now Adam knew knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. 
In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother, Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I could bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for the way that you pursue us in the midst of a broken world and in the midst of our own brokenness. You are relentless in your pursuit of us. And we give you thanks. And I pray that as we open up the word that you have given us, we would come to see you more clearly. Jesus, we would hear you calling to us. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So after... All of the sin, the death, and the cursing that we got to see last week, this story actually has a happy beginning. Adam and Eve have a child. And having a child is always a joyful occasion, but it, it had to be an especially joyful occasion for Adam and Eve. Uh, think back to when you were little, and do you remember when you broke something? Uh, maybe you dropped one of your mom's favorite plates and it shattered all over the kitchen floor. Remember that feeling you felt? Like just horrible, horrible guilt, that pit in your stomach. Adam and Eve broke the world. They broke the world. And they had been feeling this horrible guilt and shame everywhere they looked. It reminded them of what they had done and how they had broken something that once was perfect. 
And now all around them, they, they see this brokenness and they've been told that death has entered their bodies and now death is part of this world and this is the world they now live in. But then life comes. Actually, there is new life breaking through into this broken world and that had to mean the world to them. They had to be overwhelmed with joy. This child, it represented hope. Hope in the midst of a land that's been cursed. When Cain is born, Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I love that. Never heard a mother say that. Uh, most mothers say like, look at my precious little angel. Uh, look at my beautiful child. I've, I've never met, met a mother who said, look at my man. <laughs> but that is what Eve says. It's very unusual language. It's the only time we have in the Bible that any baby is ever described as a man. But what she has to be thinking is this. This is the man. This is the child, the seed that God promised would come forth from my body and would slay the serpent. This is the one who's going to make everything right again, who's going to undo the mess that we created. This is the man-child who's going to slay the serpent and defeat evil. And so she names this man-child here. She names him Cain. And this name actually expresses all the hopes she has for her child. Uh, Cain means achiever, producer, successful. Cain holds their hopes. Now they do have a second child, but unlike Cain's birth, nothing is said about his conception, nor does Eve say anything after he is born. They just name him. So they call the son Abel, which means vapor or breath or mist. It's the word that we actually translate in the book of Ecclesiastes as meaningless. They named their child meaningless, which is just, I, I can't imagine. Maybe they were wrestling between John and meaningless, you know, and just decided we're, you know, meaningless. Uh, they, they put a whole lot of thoughts in their names. We usually just think of, I like the sound of that, or maybe it's a family name and we use that. But they named their children based on the expectations they had for that child. And it shows that all their expectations went to Cain, but they didn't expect much from Abel. Abel's life in comparison to the achiever, well, it just didn't matter as much. And of course, Abel would live up to his name of a mist or a vapor. His life would be just a mere breath. We read on to see that Cain takes on the profession of his dad. He becomes a farmer. He works the ground, probably working in close proximity to his dad in the fields. Abel, well, Abel's sent off to the fields to be a shepherd, which would have been a new profession at this time. In verse 3, we read that in the course of time, Cain and Abel brought forth their offerings. That phrase, in the course of time, it um, it can mean at the appointed time. There seems to be this appointed time that God set up, perhaps an appointed time in an appointed place in which man would bring him offerings, sacrifices. Perhaps it was a, a yearly harvest festival. We're not sure, but there was an appointed time and place for them to worship the Lord. 
And Cain is described as coming and he brings fruit. Abel is described as bringing his firstborn and the fat portions. Abel's described as bringing his best. Uh, and now we read that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain and his offering. The wording of that sentence is very important. Notice that the Lord is regarding the person first before the offering. He has regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain and his offering. God is looking at the person more than the offering they bring. And for some reason, some reason that we are not told of here, God has more regard for Abel, but not for Cain. In order to find the reason for that, there's some hints in the text, but in order to find the real reason for that, we have to go to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 11, where we read these words at the start of the service. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So apparently Abel had faith and Cain did not have faith. But what does that mean to have faith? Because it certainly looks like Cain had some measure of faith. Cain wasn't an atheist. He believed in God. He's even, he even talks to God. He has some kind of a relationship with God. Cain brings an offering to the Lord. So from the outside, it, it doesn't look like Cain is really any different from Abel. I know it's tempting for us to think of Cain as some kind of pagan atheist, you know, goes out binge drinking and cursing all the time. And, and that's why God hates him and didn't regard his offering. But you don't find that here. And when you project that on Cain, you actually miss the point of the text. That's not what Cain looks like. He's a hardworking man who participates in family worship, who brings sacrifices once again, from the outsider, he doesn't really look different from Abel. But when God rejects Cain and his offering, what he's doing is, is exposing some things that are actually going on in Cain's heart. After Cain's offering was rejected, we read that he became angry and his face fell. Uh, to have your face fall in Hebrew, that, that means you become deeply discouraged or depressed. A deep depression comes upon Cain. So he's angry and he's depressed, but it's not just because he was rejected. It's because he was rejected and Abel was not. That was the source of his anger and his depression, is that Abel was not rejected. You see, up to this point, Cain had always been first. Cain was the producer. Cain was the achiever. Cain was literally named the successful one. Cain was the one who held all the hopes of his parents. Abel? Abel was a nobody. How in the world could God have regard for a nobody and not have regard for him? It made Cain furious. Now, God sees all of this going on in Cain's heart, and God has such compassion for him. 
quickly God comes to Cain, not to smite him, but but really to expose what's going on in Cain's heart in order to help him. He comes not with accusations, but he comes like a counselor with questions. And he asks Cain, why are you so angry? It's a really probing question. Why are you angry, Cain? Why can't you be happy for your brother just this once? Why can't you be happy for your brother who has been inferior to you your whole life, a brother who has always come in second? Why couldn't this one time you just be happy that he came in first? But Cain couldn't do it. What we see here is that Cain found his identity in always being better than his brother. His identity was not built on what God thought about him. His identity was built on being the achiever and achieving more than his brother. And what we see here is that Cain is the first of many elder brothers that we will see throughout the pages of Scripture. Cain is the first elder brother. The first of many who, when they see God lavishing grace on someone else, they hate him for it. They don't rejoice, but they hate God for it. Because elder brothers believe they have worked hard. They believe that they are more deserving of God's favor than anyone. An elder brother derives his value by comparison, not by grace. And an elder brother just cannot accept the fact that God loves us and saves us by grace alone. That's the faith that Abel had, that he was being saved by God's grace. It was not a faith in what he could achieve, but it was a faith in God's promise in what God would later achieve, and that God would send someone to rescue them. So Cain despises He despises a God who saves by grace. But here's the problem. Cain can't kill God. He can't kill God. So he decides to kill the one whom God has regard for. And there is a lot that you can unpack here about how the true nature of violence and the true nature of murder is not that we hate one another, but there's actually a deep, seething hatred towards God underneath it all. But notice God's response. Notice how gracious God is here. I mean, first off, God uses this time of worship to to bring out and to expose this evil thing that's happening in Cain's heart. And this is often what God does when we come to him in worship. Um, Yes, worship is a time in which we celebrate in God's grace, but, but worship's also a time when as we're doing this, he exposes us. He exposes sin in us. Remember when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus talked about how when you're going and you're bringing an offering to the altar, he said, if God brings it to your remembrance, if there you remember that somebody has something against you, leave, go make things right with that person and then come back and make your sacrifice. And what we see there is even Jesus is saying, when you come to worship him, he's gonna expose things. He's going to bring up in your heart sins that you need to deal with now. 
And that actually is an act of worship to deal with those sins now as he brings those up. And so that's God's first gracious thing he does is he takes this time of worship to expose some of Cain's heart here. And then he doesn't yell at Cain when Cain gets angry. He doesn't smite him with boils or give him commands. Once again, he comes as a counselor. He's so gentle. He wants to understand what's going on in Cain's heart here. And then he encourages him, don't give in to this sin. Don't give in. You can do better. Try again, Cain. Then we come to verse 7. Verse 7 is a hugely important verse. If you've ever read Steinbeck's East of Eden, uh, it's one of my favorite books. The entire book is really about this one verse. Verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, the reason that this verse is so important for us is because here for the first time in scripture, we come across the word sin. This is when sin as a word is introduced to us and God himself tells us the nature of sin. And God describes sin as something alive, something powerful, something stealthy, something that wants to devour you. God describes sin as crouching and desiring us. Sin is not described as a mere bad decision that you make. It's described as a predator hunting its prey. God says that sin crouches. Now, what does crouching look like? Crouching is when something that is big makes itself look small. That's what crouching is. Something that's big makes itself look small. It hides itself. When a lion crouches, what it's doing is it's trying to disguise its strength. It's trying to make itself not look like a threat, make itself seem harmless and small. My kids asked me, um, what I was going to dress up for for Halloween um, because they put great thought in this. And, uh, and I said, well, I'm just going to wear this. Um, it wasn't actually this, but this is pretty much what I wear every day. You know, jeans, button down, short sleeve. Uh, and they're like, Dad, you have to dress up as something. And I said, I am. I'm dressing up as a, as a homicidal maniac. And they're like, Dad, you know, that's not what a homicidal maniac looks like. I said, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> The best ones look completely normal. And they go, Dad, you can't do that. I said, fine, I'll dress up like a spy. Well, how are you, what are you going to wear? I'm going to wear this. Because <laughs> the best spies, you never know they're spies. That's what sin does. Sin doesn't want to attract attention to itself. Sin wants to look completely normal. It wants you to think of it as small or harmless. So sin's going to come to your door and it's going to knock, but it is not going to announce itself like, hello, my name is jealousy. Can I come in and rob you of all joy? That's not what sin does. Sin's, hello, 
hey, I didn't mean to bother you. I, I'm just one of your neighbors. I just want to say that I noticed your house is a little bit smaller than your neighbors. And I just want you to know, I think you deserve better. Really? Huh? You want to come in? Yeah, I'd be happy to come in. Sin doesn't want to look like a threat. It wants to look harmless. Sin wants you to believe that you are not in danger of being a workaholic, but it wants to crouch and say, no, you're just busy right now. It doesn't want to come to you and say you're in danger of being greedy. It wants to say, no, you're just, you're just a little stingy. It's not that you worry about money. It's just, no, you're actually, you're prudent. Sin wants you to believe that you're not committing lust. You're just admiring somebody's looks. I mean, it's, it's harmless to just take a look, isn't it? Sin wants you to believe that you're not telling a big, bold lie. It's just a little white lie. It's just a little fib. It doesn't really matter. It wants you to think it's small, but it's spring-loaded, and it is ready to spring on you. God says it is hunting you. Sin is hunting you. Years ago, I took my kids to Homewood Park. Um, for those of you who are familiar with that park, you know that um, there's a little water area there. Um, everywhere, there are signs that say, do not play in the water. And so I told our kids, hey, let's go play in the water. And uh, they're like, dad, there's signs that say we're not allowed to. And I said, those signs are like suggestions. Um, they're just suggesting we don't play, but come on, I'm a fun dad. So we're going to go play in the water. And so we go and we play in the water and I was teaching them how to find and to catch crawfish, um, which there's tons of crawfish there. And I, I was saying, you know, a lot of times crawfish, they hide underneath the rocks here. And so I got a little rock and they're all around me and I just pull up the rock and a water moccasin launches out and it, it bites onto the edge of my finger, the tip of my finger. Um, I'm alive, you know, spoiler alert. So it, 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 didn't, it didn't kill me. It didn't have time to inject venom, just, just puncture my fingers or my finger. And I was able to shake it off. I didn't even see it. It was small, crouched, spring loaded, but it was just waiting for me. God says, that's what sin is. That's what sin does. It looks so small and so harmless. Perhaps you don't even see it but it's hunting you. Some of you have let sin into your life and God bless you because you are actually convinced it's harmless. And that is exactly what it wants you to think. It's not small, it's crouching. It's not harmless, it will consume you. And when you let it in the door, it starts to gain power. It immediately starts to master you. Remember how the first lie you told to cover up something? Remember how that one was the hardest? How you just, oh, I don't know if I can do it. Oh. And then you said the lie. It wasn't so hard the second time, was it? Or the third? It's because sin is gaining a power over you. Remember how hard it was that, that time that you, you clicked on that inappropriate website? Ah. Oh wasn't so hard the next day, was it? That is sin gaining a power over you and it wants to destroy you. 
And God says here, you don't let it master you. You must master it. Rule over it. How do we rule over it? What are we supposed to do? Well, one of the things I think we're supposed to do, or actually two, is we're supposed to get a friend and we're supposed to turn on the lights. Get a friend and turn on the lights. Um, So Halloween is approaching, um, or All Saints Day. That's what we celebrate. Um, No, So Halloween's approaching, so there's all these horror movies that are coming on now, and I, I... hate horror movies. I won't watch them. Um, it's not because of the blood and the gore. I just hate watching stupid people. And, uh, and that's what <laughs> horror movies are filled with. And so there's always, you know, you, you've heard like, you know, the news is out there that there's some kind of murderer loose in the neighborhood. And then there's somebody at their house and they hear something crash in the basement. And they're like, oh, I think I'll just go into the basement. And you're like, please. All right. And so they go and like, oh, the lights don't work. And they don't bring a friend with them. They don't bring a flashlight with them. They just decide to go down into the basement. And that's the reason I can't watch horror movies. It's, it's, I'm not aghast at the blood and guts. I'm just aghast at their stupidity. And I, it's natural selection at work there. And so <laughs> I won't watch it. But that's what we do. We know sin's there somewhere crouching. It wants us, and we go in there blind without a friend. Bring a friend, turn on the lights. By bringing a friend, I mean this. Deputize someone in your life to point out your blind spots. Someone who could look into your life and tell you the areas that you are weak, the sin that is crouching around you that you do not see. And I want to say this, that um, sometimes you're going to deputize something, somebody and they're going to point out something in your life. You're going to be like, ah, I really think you're wrong. And you know what? They might be wrong. They might be completely wrong and you might be completely right. But I want you to act as if at least something of what they said is true. Be paranoid. Listen and at least hear some truth in what that person you have deputized to point out things in your life, what they are saying. And then turn on the lights. We turn on the lights a couple of ways. First is this. We not just deputize people to point out our blind spots, but the areas that we know are there, that are, we are weak in, that we are tempted in, or that we have sinned in, we confess these areas to someone. And we expose the sin. Predators hunt in the dark. And the more you keep that struggle in the dark and you don't tell anyone, the more it has power over you. Confess that to someone. Another way we bring it to the light is we name it for what it is. It is sin. It's not stinginess. It's greed. This isn't just eye candy. It's a porn addiction. We name it for what it is. It is sin. It wasn't a little fib. No, it's an outright lie. Label sin, sin. Bring it to the light. Bring a friend and bring it to the light and rule over this. God is pleading with Cain to do this. So how does Cain respond? Because God's like, you can do it. You can do it, Cain. What does Cain do? He literally runs straight to sin. 
without hesitation. Cain, he gets his brother to go out with him into the field. And once they're alone, he rises up and he kills Abel. This is cold-blooded, premeditated murder. The first person to ever die in the world did not die by natural causes, died by the hand of his brother. Think of how crushing that would have been to Adam and Eve. I mean, the child that they thought was going to be the serpent slayer slayed his brother. I mean, their hopes are dashed at this point. No parent should outlive their child. And they outlived Abel. And the only thing I can even think that might be worse than that is if one of your children was a killer. They experienced both. They lost two children that day. They had to be devastated by this. How does God respond? I mean, how does God respond to someone who just created such devastation? Someone who just ignored his counsel, ran straight to sin and murder? He doesn't respond how I would respond. He responds with an unbelievable kindness. God is so, so merciful to Cain here. He doesn't smite him. Instead, once again, he comes as a counselor and he asks Cain questions. Where is your brother? Cain callously, smugly answers, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Right there, the lightning bolt would have gone for me if I was God. I mean, instantly. I'm like, I've had it. Gone. I mean, Cain shows no remorse whatsoever. God responds by saying, what have you done? What have you done? Your brother's blood is literally crying out from the ground to me. And then he curses Cain. When Adam sinned, God cursed the ground. When Cain sinned, God cursed Cain. The ground was already cursed. But now he curses Cain on top of that and says, never try as hard as you want. You're never bringing anything up from this ground. It will never produce to you its fruit. He says, you're going to be a wanderer basically over the earth. Basically, I mean, he's going to be begging for the rest of his life. Cain cries out, not in repentance, but he says, no, the punishment's too great. Whoever finds me is going to kill me. If I'd been God, I would have said, good, you deserve it. You brought this all on yourself. But once again, God is so unbelievably kind, so kind. He puts a mark on Cain. There's been a lot written about this mark, a lot speculated about this mark, but this is this is not a stigmata. This is not a mark of a curse. This is a mark of protection. This is going to be the same word that's going to be used later to describe the rainbow after the flood, the same word that'll be used to describe the mark of circumcision. This is a mark of mercy, providing protection for Cain. It's not a mark of wrath. Now hear this, church. If God is this merciful to someone who refuses to listen or to repent, imagine what he will do for those who turn to him and cry out for mercy and for forgiveness. If he responds this way to people who don't give a rip about him, 
and do whatever they want to do, just keep on sinning. Just imagine how he will respond to you if you go to him and you plead for mercy. And actually, we don't have to imagine because we know exactly what he will do because we have seen it in Jesus Christ. Jesus is to whom this story points. Jesus is the one who's the true serpent slayer, not Adam or not Cain. We're actually going to see Cain's story happening over and over and over. It's just on repeat all throughout history. We're going to keep putting hopes on a certain person, and they're going to sin and disappoint over and over. And the whole world's been filled with violence and sin. Not till Jesus do we finally get the serpent crusher. Jesus is like Abel, the good shepherd, killed by his brothers. Jesus' blood falls to the ground, but unlike Abel's blood, Jesus' blood speaks a better word to us. Jesus' death means something different than the death of Abel. We read this in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, we read that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and we read his blood speaks a better word than Abel. His blood speaks a better word than Abel. Now, in the story of Cain and Abel, Abel never speaks. He never does. But actually, we read in Genesis 4 that his blood speaks, cries out from the ground. In Hebrews 11, we hear that his blood is speaking or Abel is still speaking. In Hebrews chapter 12, we hear that his blood is speaking. So Abel is telling us something about his blood, even though he never says anything actually in the story. And what his blood cries out is justice. It's what the blood of every innocent person cries out is justice. And that actually is what the blood of Jesus cried out, justice. But it didn't remain there. Jesus' blood cries out justice and justified. It's a better word. It's not just about appeasing the wrath of God. God's punishment must fall on somebody. And yes, it falls on Jesus. Justice happens. But it also cries justified. Christ cried out forgiveness from the cross. His blood cries out mercy. Abel's blood cries out for revenge. Jesus' blood cries out redeemed. Such love. Jesus has looked at us in our sin and the utter mess that we have made of our lives. And he says, I will fix that. I will pay for that all with my own blood. His blood speaks a better word. And this means that we need not ever fear coming to God and confessing our sins, ever. We confess our sins and we call out for mercy because we know we have a Savior who has actually purchased that forgiveness for us. His blood speaks a better word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your immeasurable kindness that you have shown us through your son, Jesus Christ. It's a kindness we do not deserve. Lord, we keep singing how we're saved by grace and we're saved by grace. And it's just the theme of what we sing. Lord, I pray that would hit home with us. And you would just truly show us 
that we are saved not because of what we have achieved, but because of what you have achieved on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.